I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Uh, thank you for coming here to the London Review Bookshop this evening to hear this discussion about the work and influence of Frank Commode. Uh, this event has been put together in a collaboration between the English Department at UCL and the London Review of Books, and the idea is that it should be an, an annual event. That it should be a collaboration between these two institutions, the English Department at UCL and the LRB, is, of course entirely appropriate, in fact, in a sense, it's obvious. Because UCL and the LRB, in a certain sense, represent two sides of Frank Commode's astonishing achievement, his great achievement. UCL was where he, I suppose, reached the sort of apex of his career as a professional academic. And in the London Review of Books, he showed himself to be the preeminent exponent of what used to be called uh, the higher journalism. Between 1967 and 1974, when he was Lord Northcliffe Professor at UCL, Frank essentially blew open the world, the very smug and complacent world of Inglit in the British Academy. Famously, with what is now a legendary series of graduate seminars on French critical theory. He left London University to go to Cambridge. He became Edward VII professor there. And in 1979, it was Frank who called for a new journal of literary reviewing and literary criticism, or general criticism. It was during the lockout by the, of the Times by Rupert Murdoch, so the Times literary supplement was not on sale. And it seemed like a good moment to launch an alternative, a complement to, to, that, to that very distinguished journal. And it was Frank who was instrumental in persuading the New York Review of Books to launch the London Review of Books. It was Frank who was the leading figure in that move. And when the London Review of Books became independent in 1980, only six months after it was launched, Frank remained a close and stalwart and loyal friend of the paper. He was on the board of directors. But more particularly... He showed that commitment through his contributions to the magazine. He, between 1979 and 2010, when he died, he contributed no fewer than 232 articles to the LRB, which is an unprecedented productivity. 
That was during a period in which he wrote 27 books to add to the 33 that he had already written and, of course, wrote innumerable articles for other journals uh, in America and in the UK. I think that Frank's commitment to the LRB was not just about his interest in a project that he had essentially started. I mean, we could say that he was the progenitor of the whole thing and that we wouldn't be sitting here this evening if it hadn't been for him. But I think it was more than that. I think that it expressed a fundamental commitment to a certain sort of writing and a certain sort of discourse. And whatever you call that discourse, essentially it acts as a bridge between professional academic writing on the one hand, theory and so on, and what we might call the world of the common reader. I think Frank was fundamentally committed to that, and I think that he felt that it was a crucial form of discourse for any healthy and vigorous society or culture. That without that, things can get very bad. Now, he was characteristically modest about his achievement. I remember him saying towards the end of his life that he didn't think that his influence would last or that there would be much resonance. Well, this evening's uh, occasion is a definitive answer to that, of course, uh, and who could be more appropriate as a chair of this event than John Mullen, who, like Frank, is Professor of English at UCL and is also a valued contributor to the London Review of Books. Some of you will have read his amusing, wry, and I think extremely fair assessment of F.R. Leavis in a recent issue. So I will now hand over to John Mullen and ask him to introduce the other panellists. Thank you very much. Thank, thanks very much, Nick. Um, it's so, it was so, so fair that I got an email only this morning from the Liebes Society inviting me to come up and party with them next month at York University. Ah, I'm pondering it. Um, I agree very much with, with, with what Nick says about the way that Frank bridged the world of academia and the world of, of what he was unafraid, actually, to call the common reader. And before I, I introduce the members of my panel, I just want to say one more thing about this event, and, and uh, which I very much hope will be um, uh, an annual event. And um, my colleague, the idea from it came from my colleague Matthew Beaumont, and who rightly felt that... Um, we needed to show Frank that he was wrong about uh, his criticism, his work, his teaching, his presence, um, not carrying on being influential after his death. And I think Matthew and I, when we talked about it, when we talked about it more widely in the department, we felt that somehow a kind of memorial lecture was wrong or was inappropriate when I mean, we have such things. And they can be very interesting and enjoyable occasions. But that... For Frank, we needed something which, in a way, gave a chance to enact the kind of dialogue that, um, that he believed in. Dialogue in the sense of having people not just listen, but have the chance to talk. And this event will give anybody here who wishes the chance to talk or remember or uh, interject afterwards, after the panellists have spoken, but also that would kind of enact the... The, the communication, the discourse between the world and between academia and the world that he believed in. So I really hope that it will be become an annual event. And I also, the other person I should thank 
for getting it off the ground is Mary Kay, Kay Wilmers, who um, readily embraced uh, the idea uh, when uh, I came to her with it and has um, helped fix this evening. I'm very grateful to her. Um, our panellists, um, on my immediate right is Stephen Fender, who was a professor at UCL. He was at UCL Man and Boy for 18 years and was variously a student and then a colleague of Frank's. And I think it's the only person on the panel actually, do you actually edited, you did a book with him, didn't you? Yes, yes. Once upon a time. Best, yes. best forgotten. Okay. Right. Frank said, himself said, got twixt sleeping and waking. <laughs> but we did. That's okay. Our, our first year lectures. On my left is Jacqueline Rose, who you will know well if you read the LRB, who's Professor of English at Queen Mary, University of London, and who also is, you are a former student of Frank's. And on my right, caught briefly before he jets away, his kind of David Lodge-like existence, uh, is, is Michael Wood, who's Professor of English at Princeton, and of course very well known uh, to anybody who reads the LRB and perhaps nudging up towards the Frank Commode hit rate, I don't know, but um, it's a target for you, Michael, it's a target. And what we're going to do is each one of my panellists is going to kind of speak for five minutes or so in monologue, and then I'll ask some questions, and then we'll give anybody here the chance either to ask questions or, or, or to speak, and I hope that there are people here who have their own memories or, or of Frank, but also their own sense of his, his influence on them. Um, I mean, I knew him, this is, I get my five minutes now, I'm afraid, I knew him um, uh, as a student a little bit, but as he says in his memoirs, when he became Professor King Edward VII, Professor of English at Cambridge, when I was an undergraduate there, one of the stipulations of the job seemed to be that he taught as little as possible and actual bans on too much teaching in case, you know, <coughs> the fine mind of the professor was too corrupted by that experience. So I just remember, I do remember the odd lecture, and then I remember getting to know him more. And um, I remember, I, I remember one, pati one particular thing, which I'm sure anybody who came across him and talked to him about books, um, or talked about books in his presence, must recall, which is... Whatever you knew, he knew about it. You know, that was, that was the bottom line. And I remember the first conversation I ever had, probably it wasn't a proper conversation because I was a PhD student. I, I didn't really have proper conversations um, in those days. And I, I instead told people what I was doing. And I told somebody in a conversation with, with Frank what I was doing, which was then a relatively obscure corner of the then, not particularly widely read novelist, 18th century novelist Samuel Richardson. Um, and I was kind of rather proud of some textual sort of flummery that I'd, 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 I'd discovered. Frank knew all about it. He knew all about it. And I realise now, actually, he was far too kind to give this impression. He'd found out about it and realised it was far too dull much to preoccupy him <laughs> became my thesis, but but he didn't say anything to discourage me at the time. But it's an extraordinary sort of experience. I think lots of people who knew Frank <coughs> had, and it really rang a bell. Some of you will have read um, the article, the sort of mini memoir that John Norton uh, published in the Guardian of Frank, 
which uh, rang very true to my memories of him. So I'm going to quote from it. I'm going to quote one particular thing because um, it was something he said Frank had said to him once, and I could hear him. I could absolutely hear him. And it seemed so characteristic. And John Norton said that uh, he was discussing some very eminent scientist that they both knew and who'd received lots of honours and awards. And John Norton said in the sort of ebullition of the moment that he was a Nobel laureate to boot. Oh, really, said Frank. I hadn't known that. And John Norton said he realised afterwards that was what Frank Commode said when you just talk rubbish. (laughs) And I realised that Frank said that quite a few times to me, actually. He only said it once to... And you could absolutely hear him saying, oh, really? I hadn't known that, which meant it wasn't true. Um, I, and I, uh, Nick talked about his extraordinary productivity. Um, I, just two quick things to say about that. The first is that um, uh, I remember in, in uh, 19, uh, 1989, I think it was. No, sorry, 1999 when Frank was 80, I was asked, I mean, this kind of thing, I know may sound rather brutal, this kind of thing happens a lot. Somebody from The Guardian rang me up and said, could we have an obituary of Frank Commode, please, on file? We need one on file. He's 80. And, of course, you know, I'm afraid it's the case that most kind (coughs) of uh, people in public life who are over the age of 70, all the newspapers have already got obituaries ready to go. Such is life. And um, so I wrote one. And then, happily, frankly, for many years after that. And when he did die in 2010, uh, the newspaper said, will you go back to the obituary and just, you know, just tidy it up, add a few things. And I had to add tons because in that sort of, just over 10 years, in his 80s, he'd not just published lots and lots of reviews, several collections of essays, um, an edition of The Duchess of Malfi, um, but also a book on E.M. Forster and a book on Shakespeare's language, which amongst students, actually students of A-level, but also undergraduates, is now probably the most referred to, admired, and enjoyed book of criticism on Shakespeare currently in print. Um, And it's extraordinary, that kind of constant sort of um, critical creativity and the range over which it was expressed. The other thing I'll say about his productivity, lest we get too pious about Frank, is I remember he gave me only one bit of advice ever, but it's a really, really good one. And he said, if something's worth writing, you should try to get paid for it three times. I said, three times? He said, yes, three, not two. Two's easy, but three's better. And I said, how do you do three? And he said, first of all, you give it as a lecture, public lecture, for which you're paid, preferably in the United States. I haven't managed to do that, but anyway. Secondly, you then produce some version of it in a journal or a magazine or a newspaper for which you get paid And thirdly, it becomes a chapter in a book. And then he paused and he said, for which you must make sure you get paid. (laughs) Um, So he wasn't just saintly. And uh, and I'll end, I'll end my little thing by, also I 
tried to think, how could I get to listen to his voice before, get his voice again before this event? And I'm afraid I did something very desperate, but it was really interesting. I googled um, Desert Island Discs. Did any of you listen to his Desert Island Discs? Long time ago, 1997. And um, it was wonderful because it, it, it called up a quality which I'm sure we will all want to recall. It's been mentioned already, actually, by Nick, his sort of modesty and self-deprecation. But listening to Desert Island Disc, you really you realised what a kind of canny old thing that modesty was or could be. Sue Lawley, who was doing it then, is entirely baffled how this person whom she keeps referring to as Sir Frank, who is obviously a knight of the realm and a professor of this and a professor of that, and he is giving her that, oh, I just drifted along. It just all seems like I never know. I always made the wrong decision. I wish I'd been a clarinetist. And absolutely bamboozled by it. It's kind of it's just a wonderful rhetorical performance. And I remember that was one great thing about Frank. He was gracious and modest, but also playfully so. I wonder if anybody here can remember what his Desert Island book was? Because that's an interesting question, isn't it? What would the man who's read everything choose as his Desert Island book? Oh. Sorry, who said that? Yes, tell us, sir. You know what it is? Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Ah, <laughs> by Gibbon. And he gave us his reason, the very... Commodian yet uncommodian one that he hadn't read it. And I remember when I when I heard this, I did a terrible thing. I went and read The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, which up to that moment I hadn't read, but I had now read it, and I was like um, Do you know what his luxury was? His luxury. His luxury was Samuel Palmer's painting in the tape, Moonlit Landscape with Sheep. Yeah. I'm not quite sure what to make of that, but anyway, telling as well. So we're going to start... I've had more than my time, sorry, but we're going to start with Steve is going to talk first about Frank. Steve. Well, I'll keep... Uh, as short as I can, and I'll make it very uh, informal. Um, I knew, I've known Frank. I knew Frank for 50 years from 1960 to his death. He was my research supervisor. It took some, uh, my, my first supervisor, I'd, I'd, won a, um, I'd won a studentship to, to Manchester, and I was immediately assigned, because I was doing an American topic, an American lit man, who turned out had no interest in anything written before 1850. Unfortunately, I was working on a colonial poet called Edward Taylor, um, who's, uh, Provenance was really English metaphysical poetry more than anything else. So uh, I found that difficult, but I, I did know about Frank because I'd read his... Do anybody remember, no, no one's old enough to remember this. His British Council pamphlet on John Donne, one of, one of the first things he published, and I read that. This is my copy, and um, I annotated. I realized this was a quite remarkable man, and when I got to Manchester, I would try to get him to be my supervisor. Well, it took a bit of doing, but finally he agreed. And um, he was a wonderful supervisor. He was very young, of course. He looked like a, like a, a dentist or a, an estate agent. He didn't dress like a typical academic at all. No leather patches. He did smoke a pipe, as we all know, incessantly. But he looked, he looked very um, sort of ordinary. And yet he was out, out, there's no doubt at all that he was um, 
um, a, a towering intellect, I mean, from day one. He met his students regularly, undergraduates as well as postgraduates, none, none of this grand professor behind the, behind the lecture dais, but, but he saw them one-to-one -one and uh, in small groups. I took, I took um, seminars in, or tutorials in, in the metaphysicals with him. And I was working on Edward Taylor, and I got to working on, on his, um, his interpretation of certain parts of the Bible. His, um, um, in fact, he would write Taylor, but well, I won't go into the detail, but it, it involved biblical interpretation. And Frank said, sort of offhand, he said, well, you might have a look at the Patrologia Latina. And I thought, you know, I went to the, he said, we have the whole, we have the whole of the Patrologia Latina in the library here at Manchester and the Patrologia Graeca as well. Well, I went up and looked, and of course it was 140 volumes, 240 volumes, the Patrologia Latina of quarto, you know, quarto volumes, and the, the Graeca was 117. Well, now, I knew a bit of Latin, and I was t taking a course in Greek at the university, so bit by bit I began to assimilate not the whole of this work, <laughs> I may say, but since each was, was keyed to a particular passage in the Bible, it was quite easy, really, to zero in on what the church fathers had had to say by way of interpretation. So I started off in her interpretation, the sort of rough end of the stick, but it was an immensely useful tip, and one that was only given once. He was a, a forbidding but, but, and polite, but not terribly warm supervisor. I got to know him later, of course, and he was very warm, and all the things that people have said about him are true. But to his research students back there in the 60s, we, all, we were all scared of him, frankly. And anyway, I, I got to, he hired me at UCL to start American studies, American literature. And I arrived in, I can't remember when it was, 1969, I guess. And, and Frank had said, I wonder whether you'd mind. He said, I'm going to go off to Wesleyan for a year. Would you mind terribly doing my Renaissance lectures? And uh, this meant, you know, um, the, 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 the Sydney's Arcadia, the whole of the Fairy Queen, Dunn and the Metaphysicals, uh, Milton, and so on. And I, I, I said, and these are big first-year lectures. And the next thing I knew, I was in... I realized from the movie that it was the, the room in which um, the first scene of Doctor in the House takes place. <laughs> which, as though a medical school... And, and it, actually is, it actually is a medical... It's the big medical uh, um, lecture theater. So I was a bit uh, disoriented, but I had worked very hard over the summer, and I gave a, a presentable set of lectures. Meanwhile, um, another uh, young hiree, um, Gray Riven, Lord Gowrie, had, had joined the staff, and he told me that his job was to start American literature. So I thought, okay, I'm doing the Renaissance, and Gray is doing the... Fortunately, at the end of the year, Margaret Thatcher gave Gray Riven a job, uh, Lord Gallery a job as arts minister, and he was out of the picture. So the next year, the second year began, when Fred came back from Wesleyan, everything was fine. I loved it. I started off my... prepared my course, ordered books for the library, and we got on very well. In fact, the department was a, a very happy, you'll hear about this again, I'm sure, an extremely happy time for all of us, for Frank, for the department much renovated from its uh, really quite dire recent past. Um, the other thing is, is the seminar. It'll be mentioned, it's already been mentioned. I was, he did me the honor of coming to my room and asking me to, 
to be his sort of sidekick. I thought, well, I can't, I'm hardly fit for that. But what he meant was take the chair when he wasn't there, uh, which I think was only twice or two or three times, I can't remember. But I, I was in most of the, I went to most of the meetings of the seminar, which, which was uh, an immense uh, labor. It was weekly, um, and the um, Xerox machine was steaming to get the various you know, prints out. We could take home briefcases of stuff to read over the week, uh, and I still have, you know, half a suitcase full of, a whole suitcase, a suitcase and a half full of printouts of things that we did, starting with the, the Russian formalists and the French linguists and, linguists and, 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 and Bart and Derrida and everything else. We also did a lot, and various, well, you'll hear more about it in due course, but it was, it was a great event, a great occasion. So I, and, and what can I say in, in, in terms of the friendship, I, I under, underrate what, I underscore what everyone else has said, and funnily enough, picked out and Xeroxed, though I didn't bring it with me, the very piece that uh, by John Norton huh. and the very quote that you said, I hadn't realized. I thought he caught it. Yeah. He caught that voice better when Frank, all the obituaries and memorials, he was the one that caught Frank best, I thought. I wish he were here. You know, I might have always wanted to tell him how much I appreciated that piece. Anyway, um, we were friends. Uh, we went on holiday together. We saw each other a lot. And um, he was a great... Um, uh, I, I should speak. Well, I hope to speak sometime later about what he meant intellectually to me. But I have to say that it was really. Um, I must speak first, just personally. He was my best friend, and uh, of course, um, I um, grieve when he died, like everyone else. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much, Steve. Jacqueline. Um, well, I mean. I don't know quite where to begin in a way, so I'll just begin with my first meeting with um, Frank. Um, I had been hanging out in French cafes and um, <laughs> pretending to do a maîtrise in comparative literature, having fled Oxford University and sworn I would never go anywhere near Oxbridge again. And French theory and psychoanalysis came to my rescue. And Colin McCabe, who was a very, very old friend of mine, I've known him since I was 16, said, if you want to go back to England and do a PhD, the only person you can do it with is Frank Camote. There's nobody else you'll be able to work with. Um, and he told me about the extraordinary seminars he was running at UCL, the graduate seminars, which had already had a national and international reputation. He was, to put it very simply, the only person who was doing theory in the English Academy. Um, so I applied to UCL um, to work on children's fiction. And I thought, this is UCL, I better be very serious. So um, I put in a proposal on children's fiction and 19th century fantasy based on the work of Gillian Avery and Christianity and um, the child. And then somewhere between submitting the proposal and being accepted by UCL, um, I discovered psychoanalysis. <coughs> and I decided, in fact, I wanted to write my thesis on Peter Pan. OK, so I walked into his office. And I was thrilled when I arrived at UCL. And in fact, I think it might have been you, Stephen, who told me that he was going to be my supervisor. I think we had a preliminary really? meeting. I think it's possible. <laughs> was I in charge? <laughs> you were in you charge. You were in charge of something. <laughs> uh, and I went into the room, and uh, he had the proposal. And I had my new proposal on Peter Pan and Freud and psychoanalysis. And I gave it to him. And he sat there smoking his pipe, looking. I don't know how you, how you, what you said. I was thought of an estate agent. I don't know. He just looked so 
normal. And I thought, this can't be right because he's so knowledgeable. How can you look normal and be that knowledgeable? And I realized in the end it was to do with the lightness with which he carried his learning. And that was actually a cultural point of the kind that Nikki has already made this evening, which is that he believed that culture should be something that could be shared and should not be a burden to the people you were trying to communicate it to. So I realized that sort of pseudo-normality, that immense casualness, was part of an argument, right? Um, but I didn't quite get that at the time. So there you are sitting there with the Gillian Avery proposal, and I gave him the Peter Pan proposal. And as he sat there puffing on his pipe, looking, you know, looking as he looked, and, he, and I just started thinking, this person has my intellectual future in their hands. They can, he can, you know, he can say, sorry, we accepted you for this. And he just very quietly said, well, actually, you know, the one we accepted you for, and I thought, oh, here we go, is the one you must, I thought he was going to say is the one, he said, was really terribly boring. <laughs> so I thought, yes, okay, fantastic. And it then turned out, and this then became the basis of a, of a lifelong um, friendship and real mutual respect um, between us. It then turned out that his connection to psychoanalysis was intellectually um, profound and that he had a real respect for the psychoanalytic project. And he responded to that immediately in what I was trying to do. And he then, I mean, he was a man of many introductions. And for somebody who was so modest and in some ways not so hugely sociable in a way, he nonetheless seemed to know absolutely everybody. And before I knew where I was, he'd introduced me to extraordinary psychoanalysts, Masoud Khan, André Green, J.B. Pontalis, and sort of ushered me into a world in which psychoanalysis mattered and was being practiced. As if he was also saying to me, you may think you can just use this intellectually, but it's a life and it's a world. And I think that sense I've always had of wanting to hold on to both sides of psychoanalysis, inside and outside the academy, also comes from him. Um, I don't want to make this all sound too cosy. So I should say that we ended up with some really profound uh, disagreements around what could perhaps loosely be called literary theory, right? Um, and I remember he was, um, he was working with people like Stephen Heath and Colin McKay before he went to Cambridge. And uh, we were all hanging... Oh, that's right. When I got back from Paris, the place I most liked to hang out on was uh, Dean Street and Wardour Street and go to Valerie's Café, where the editors of Screen magazine would all hang out. And they were translating Althusser and Christian Metz. And we honestly thought Screen Magazine was it, right? I mean, MF hadn't started yet, and that became it for me. But, you know, Screen Magazine was it. Um, and I'll never forget walking into his office one day, and he said, uh, I said, have you, have you, I knew he was going to be reading something. He said, yes, he said, I was rather aghast. <laughs> and I thought, oh, dear, now we're, now we're in big trouble. And we were sort of in big trouble from then on in because a lot of what happened to literary theory, he really didn't like. Um, and he turned, I think it could be said, he turned against it in some way. And the reason I, I would sit in lectures sometimes where he was more or less railing against certain forms of new critical theory because he felt they had sacrificed a certain love, a certain devotion, a certain attention to the minutiae of how words work, hence the Shakespeare language book at the end of his life. And I was sitting there thinking, why am I being spared? How come I've slipped <laughs> under the radar? And I think it was because of our shared love of psychoanalysis. Um, 
However, I do, have, I do think that reading, that he turned against theory, and what often goes alongside that is some notion about him sort of discarding a certain idea of the political. And I noticed that in the edition of um, Critical Quarterly that was devoted to him last year, that I edited with Stephen Heath and Colin McCabe, Colin McCabe says in the editorial that he thought there was an attention to the social that was sometimes missing in the writing. So perhaps we can come back, back, to, in, into that, back to that in discussion, because I now think that's a misreading. I think it's a misreading I've been guilty of, and lots of people have, and I'd love to have the chance to say why. But because that's sort of theory, perhaps we should save that for later. So I just want to end by saying I would not have survived. I wouldn't have been able to breathe intellectually in the atmosphere that was English academia if it hadn't been for his generosity and if it hadn't been for his openness to what was going on across the channel and to his wry sort of humorful sort of curiosity about what on earth my generation was going to make of it all. And I think he was really open in that sense and I I really will owe him for the rest of my life. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks very much. Michael. Thank you, Tom. I think the first and perhaps the most lasting thing I learned from Frank Commode, from reading him, that is, I didn't get to know him personally until relatively late in his life. Uh, The first and lasting thing I learned was about reading itself. Not about how to read, as one might learn from Empson or Richard, say, but about what to read. And yet not exactly about what to read. Uh, There was a sort of how in the what as well. The reading lesson wasn't about context or bibliography or stuff you should catch up on. And one didn't exactly want to read what Commode had been reading. Well, that wouldn't, wouldn't be a bad idea, since if one read half of what he'd read, one would be an extremely educated, well-educated person. Now, the thing I felt one had to do was to learn how to read alongside things, alongside whatever else one was reading, the way he knew how to read things alongside other things, the way he knew how to connect, to compare, uh, to use modes of thinking that were creatively borrowed from uh, other zones and disciplines, from, in his case, often from theology or philosophy. Uh, But we also, I never thought it was a literal thing. I thought one should learn how to do it for whatever counted as, uh, what counted as a theology philosophy for him could be something else for us. That we would need, but we would need to uh, plunge into these neighboring things and learn something about them. The psychoanalysis thing that Jacqueline talked about is a perfect example of a world of a language that one ought to learn, the sense that you should, that one shouldn't just know one one language, that we should learn the that we should learn the way they speak in neighboring academic <coughs> countries. We should learn this language, and even if we even if we don't speak it very well, we should at least know what it is like to speak it well and how the people. We do speak it, well speak it. Uh, Commode himself is quite clear about this, and it has interesting intellectual consequences, which may in some way play into the question about theory that we can pick up later. Of, in, uh, in Not Entitled, his memoir, Commode said, said about uh, a sense of an ending. Extraordinary work, and for many of us, the place that we really came to think in this way about him. I, I, I thought about him a bit when I read Romantic Image, but for me, sense of an ending was the waking, mm. the, the waking moment mm. for me about who this person was mm. or could be. Uh, of this book, of sense of an ending, Frank Mode said, it was a work which, quote, showed an interest in Weinger and Nietzsche and in the psychology and sociology of apocalyptic thinking, but it was recognizable as literary criticism. Continues, it was, in fact, an example of literary theory as it was before it was absorbed into theory, capital T. 
think of that as grammar. It showed an interest in thinking, but was recognizable as a free criticism. Uh, criticism is not thinking. I would say it is, and I think Commode might if he was pushed, but his first impulse was to say criticism was not thinking. It wasn't inferior to thinking, but it wasn't thinking. <coughs> Writing about the same book, Sense of an Ending, uh, Tony Nuttall said, this is in a, this is in a, <coughs> I think he said it at a conference of Warwick about in celebration of Frank Commode's work, and it, it appeared in a book built out of the conference. Uh, in his, his contribution to this, this conference, uh, Tony Nuttall said about Sense of an Ending that he, quote, set a wholly new standard. Thereafter, we had all to think or else in a manner to declare ourselves enemies of thought. Commode didn't like this and was actually rather ungracious in response to this. <laughs> uh, not, again, I suspect not uncharacteristically, although, although, although subtle, kind, and generous, he had a way of being slightly... I was going to say I was going to say curmudgeonly, but it sounds too much like the word commode. So I need another <laughs> I, need, I need another adverb. But whatever that you can supply the adverb. But, but what he said about these, this contribution, the contribution of Tony Nuttall and Bernard Harrison to this conference, they he said, uh, they seem to know how to think. <laughs> devastating. I would hate to be the end receiving end of that. But I've been on the receiving end of stuff of that from Frank. But I mean that uh, uh, they he said seem to know how to think, I merely invite in such notions as occur to me as I brood over ideas more clear and distinct, such as theirs. They think, he broods. <laughs> and yet this sort of brooding can be an example of literary theory. This is what the prose of this sentence is. Inviting in, he invites <coughs> these people in, these, these uh, ideas in, notions, he's what he invites in. Inviting in surely is a way of talking about what I'm... He is talking about what I'm calling reading alongside here. We invite in Weinger, Nietzsche, Norman Cohen, Hannah Arendt, Gombrich, Tillich, uh, Bultmann, Collingwood, whatever, and we see what happens. But why not call what happens thought? Well, we can, as I've suggested, and probably we should. But the delay, the stalling over the term thought is worthwhile, I think. We probably can't actually do without it. Commode, it seems, regarded thought as essentially propositional, complete, clear, and distinct. That's what people who know how to think do. Uh, it's what they're looking for, it's what they do. But what was he looking for? What are we looking for if we're not thinking, or we don't know how to think? I, I, uh, I would, I mean, obviously there's a certain sense here, not knowing how to think is some sort of, kind of compliment. Knowing how to think is a kind of disadvantage. You're not going to make it if you know how to think. But what do we do if we don't know how to think? What are we doing instead? Uh, I take it that this other thing we do, we could call it criticism, we could call it theory, we could, we could refuse to give it a name, uh, or we could just wait until we got a better name. Uh, but it's something elusive, more elusive than thinking. It's more unfinished than thinking. It's closer, I think, to the movement of a work of literature itself. I, didn't, I don't mind calling it thinking or thought myself, but I can see why one might want to uh, hold off. And, and Commode's criticism, I think, uh, enacts this repeatedly, this, this, this um, inviting in of thought, approximation of thought, and then doing something that isn't thinking, or that he wouldn't call thinking. Think of his vocabulary. He says, for example, of himself, he was a historian of sorts. Of the best sort, I would say. Several sorts, actually. Uh, but what did he want to write the history of? 
What was he writing history, history of? He wasn't writing literary history. He wasn't writing history as we recognize it. Uh, think of the words he uses at key points in his, in his writing. The words, the words that come up again and again, they have a special sort of vintage or tone. And they're words like opinion, chance, interpretation, error. Here are a few sentences, for example. Quote, I have a notion about the course of intellectual history which tries to take into account the operation of chance. Another quote, cultural sequences, culture itself, is created by chance uh, or rather by opinion. Chance or rather by opinion. And then again, uh, a certain view, this is actually Botticelli, is the work of opinion, never to be observed without its shadow, ignorance. Or again, facts will not maintain the life of a work of art from one generation to another. Only interpretation can do that. A whole series of, of this, the, it, it's clear, I think, that, he, that this, is, this is a wonderful project, and, and it is history. But actually, knowing how to think might be a real disability in these, in these, in these territories. And here's just the last example. This is really for fun more than anything else, but I love this moment because it, 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 it concerns a phrase I like. This is what Kermode had to say about a famous error of T.S. Eliot. Eliot was very fond of a line from Turner's Revenge Tragedy, but he always got it wrong. <laughs> and the line he liked wasn't in Turner's Tragedy. <laughs> it wasn't in the Revenge Tragedy. The line is about, about the, the brevity and sureness and general lack of worthwhileness of sexual pleasure. And what Turner wrote was the poor benefit of the bewitching minute. Great line, in my view. Uh, Eliot always called this the poor benefit of the bewildering minute. <laughs> <laughs> Mainly, I like to think, because Eliot was able to see sex as bewildering, not yes, as bewitching. Yes, yes. <laughs> but Commode, uh, however, with characteristic, was more generous and less trivial than I am about this. This is what he said. There is no reason to doubt the correctness of the reading bewitching minute, but Eliot liked bewildering, which he found in an edition by J.E. Simmons, 1888. Though incorrect... Bewildering is the stronger reading, as one <laughs> might say, more modern, more Baudelairean. <laughs> <laughs> Can't do better than that. Yeah. Thank you very much. Brilliant <laughs> quote to end with. Um, I just want to, I had a couple of questions, because um, um, we must give everybody else a chance, but a couple of questions. I wanted to come on to the theory thing sort of second, and first of all, just ask actually, I'll, ask, I'll start from what you were saying, Michael, and ask whether there is. Um, whether there is a kind of critical legacy because um, I see uh, Steve has actually brought in a book entitled There Are Commodians mm. um, and one thing that was sometimes said about Frankie very influential, very much loved and much his, his companionship and his influence much valued but it would not be possible to be a commodian and I was just wondering if you taking up what you were saying at the end there about what was characteristic about his sort of, almost his sort of critical syntax, whether what his kind of legacy is and whether, whether indeed the forms that he chose to write in so often and that we value so much and that we've talked about actually made it difficult for him to have a legacy because you always thought there's another wonderful, you read another wonderful essay by Frank and and then went off and did something else. And that detained you for the pleasurable space of the essay. Mm -hmm. I think it's a great question, John. I, I, think, I, I think there is a legacy, and there will be an inheritance as long as people read him. 
Uh, and as long as, long as we need the kind of thing that he was doing, right? so I don't see any reason for there not to be, so, as long as in a way, as long as a, as a kind of open-minded, moving criticism, as long as there are things that can't be explained in convenient and handy ways, I think, I think there, will, there, there is a legacy. But it's not easy to see, to see, see its place in the academy because the academy likes, likes boxes and it likes, it likes fields and these things. And so, and I think it's characteristic of him. I think, I think one of the wonderful things about him is, in a sense, this is, this is a professional Renaissance scholar, you know, that done uh, Shakespeare. But uh, I'm, I'm not in the field, so I don't have that sense. But I, but I don't have the sense that, that, that that's... I think that Shakespeare book is a wonderful book, as, as you say. But he's not known for his work in the field. He's known for his work outside the field. The first wonderful book is all about Yeats and dancers and symbolism, mm-hmm. the romantic image. So there is something here about uh, about a figure, first of all, who who writes, let's say crudely, writes best when he's writing outside of his fields rather than in it, or that would be a, the kind of risk, say. And the other thing is the person whose best work is often done in lectures, which then become books, you know, um, and that, that speculative mode, the mode of thinking on your feet, thinking for people, rather than as you're building a solid, rather than writing the clown for, yeah. building the big thing, is actually, I think it's a, it's a wonderful legacy, but somebody has to pick it up, and it, and it might be um, in the current climate with the REF deadline <laughs> approaching or whatever else, it might be a, a risky thing to pick up. That, that, I think there's a risk in it, but I think it's a terrifically attractive. Legacy. Jacqueline, what do you think about? Is it possible to separate that question from the 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 question about theory, his receptiveness to it, his well, turning I, away from it? Well, the the argument that he was receptive and then turned away is one that I find myself having to think again, and thinking about this evening, I found myself having to think it again, because I was fascinated by what Michael said about a form of thinking which is not thought or form of criticism is not thinking. Because he was, as you briefly mentioned, very engaged with Hannah Arendt. And of course for her, totalitarianism was the destruction of critical thought. And in the sense of an ending, he quotes her quite a lot. And he even says there is a dangerous relationship between totalitarianism and certain forms of literary effectiveness. Because the only effectiveness of literature is that it has an effect. And Nazi propaganda is the same. It's not true or false. It simply has an effect. It's, it, it exists in terms of, of its capacity to force the world, as it were, to be affected by it. So there's, there are extraordinary moments in the sense of an ending where his defense of infinite interpretability or the throwaway line or casualness is an argument against totalitarianism, it seems to me. Um, and I think that's why he was receptive to a certain kind of theory that was undoing things. But he didn't want them to be undone too much. Mm-hmm. So he also writes about canon, aura, and value. Okay, they, and he, I think he's the only critic who can carry this off, both mm-hmm. of them at the same time. Right? I mean, most people are split between one of these strands or the other. And when I was reading him for this evening, I came across, I'll just read this quote, because I think it is so remarkable. He's talking about the idealization of the fragment as he sees it in a certain kind of postmodern theory. And he says, the absolute fragment is a tease, more or less invented in its modern form, where millions of people were being fragmented, warned, therefore, by a rather desperate gaiety that was founded on the disparity between the world as officially presented and the facts of the battlefield. 
So I read that and it really brought me short because I thought, ah, his suspicion of a certain kind of tease or playfulness or fragmentariness or whatever you want to call it was he was thinking about bodies fragmented on the battlefield. So then I felt I really understood something for the first time, which is that his, his, his defense of infinite interpretability, apart from being dependent on Jewish thought, which we don't have to go into, which puts him in the camp of a certain modern theory, is a political move to do with totalitarianism. Mm-hmm. And his suspicion of it is to do with the fragmentation of the battlefield, which means that this very complicated maneuver that he's doing, that as I say, I don't think anybody else can quite pull off like he has, is politically determined or politically and historically yoked to something he's very frightened about in some way, as we all should be. And he's sort of issuing a warning. And it sort of seems to me that his wariness, his self-scepticism, where he will produce an interpretation and say, of course, it's prejudice, it's myth. So he really believes in forms of attention, but then he'll double back and sort of send himself up as if what he's done is only a version of who he is. I think it also, that double of there's something to be said, but you've got to be suspicious of it, is the same ambivalence about there is a value and we must undo it. But we mustn't undo it so much that we turn into fragments on the battlefield. So I'm just feeling this is me really correcting a previous version of him, which is he was into theory and then he gave it up. (laughs) I think, no, I think he was always inside the theoretical argument, but arguing with it and sort of trying to have it more ways than one in ways that, and here I absolutely agree with Michael, so much of the academy now says you can't have it more ways than one. You've got to come down on one side. I I wonder if it's not also, I don't want to be reductive about it, but it's not sometimes reducible to his eventual, but I think often prevailing earlier, attitude towards the academy. Um, If you read, I mean, before this evening I reread some Frank Commode. One thing I read was the um, was quite a lot of his 1989 uh, uh, collection. Like so many books, it's actually a collection of pieces which have their own separate existence connected to each other. Um, and ap- and uh, the appetite for poetry, an appetite for poetry. And the prologue of that, which is about 50 pages long, yes, is a real... Um, I mean, is, is, I think, almost the best printed evidence that he didn't like theory and it names names and it goes through some absolute, some people who indeed in one or two cases like Jonathan Cullard once attended his mm-hmm. seminars and, and who actually in his memoir mentioned quite kindly but he really goes to town on and a lot of the time and then he also wants to save one or two spirits so there's a kind of um, there's a sort of vindication of Roland Barthes in it as a Actually, as a as a literary man mm-hmm. to his to to his core, unlike mm-hmm. lots of other people, and it, it it becomes it seems a lot of the time as if he turns it into an argument about about the academy, particularly about American academia. Really, that it becomes something which, in one place, was was and in some personages in their writing still complex and interesting and subtle but in its institutionalised forms is I mean not just, not something he doesn't like it's disastrous I mean is that, a, is that yeah. untrue that reading I'd, of it? I'd like to read something that Jacqueline wrote do you mind? <laughs> because I think, I think this tells us something about this movement um, it's something in your little essay which is a kind of war 
in this book, um, there are Carmodians. Whether for Lacan or Bart, the political integrity of the writing meant you had to put yourself the other side of what made most obviously and suspiciously sense. You had to generate the difficulty inside the writing. You had, as Lacan saw it, to speak against the ego, to stop the words from tidying the unconscious away. But what I did not realize then, this is Jacqueline speaking, what I did not realize then, something which I now think Lacan himself failed to predict, is that his particular ironic gesture in language could be made only once, twice and you have something between a formula and a nervous tick. Three times you have founded a school. Before you know where you, where you are, before you know where you are, a language um, intended to be a critique of egos and institutions becomes one of the academy's favorite house styles. Now that's brilliant and if you don't mind my saying so to your face, I think that partly explains A, your feelings, and obviously explain your feelings, but also may partly be a key to what Frank, to the route, to the a step he was taking on the way to the prologue to um, uh, the, the poetry, the collection of books Absolutely. about poetry. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm just, you know, the question about Kermodians, I mean, it, it might be worth coming to the, to the whole issue from another direction. Who, who are the critics who have, who have, um, who have a following. I mean, you mentioned the Lever sites. How many of them are there still? I mean, well, there's a few. There must be a few. Well, okay. <laughs> but apparently, they've lost um, some some edge of de definition uh -huh. since they are inviting you because you clearly that piece of yours was not. Um, I, I think, don't think oh, they're inviting me as a convert. I think they're inviting me as a witness well, of even, a continuing life. Well, of, even that uh, is 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 a departure right, for them. Yeah. I mean, you have to say. Who are, I mean, I, I don't know whether, whether you, in order to have a following, you have to perfect some sort of routine way of going on, it seems to me. I mean, some sort of formula that other people can pick up and follow. Frank couldn't do that because he was vastly more learned than any of us. I mean, he really was. By the way, his Renaissance bona fides are pretty well established sure, in the yeah. edition of the Tempest, which is, uh, again, as revolutionary in its field as most as, as some of the other later work was. I mean, anyway, that's another story. But it seems to me that, A, he had too wide a spread. Two, B, he, had, um, he was too learned. And, but but who, you know, who said he didn't do theory? There was certainly theory before theory. The Sense of an Ending is a theoretical book, mm -hmm. though not in the sense that but it does still keep in touch just about with literature. David Lodge said um, in this same book that it, it totally, and I, I think I might, it, this might be worth qualifying to some extent, but uh, he said, my personal acquaintance with Frank since then has been maintained principally through meetings at, um, at conferences, etc., etc. I still remember the grateful wonder with which I read The Sense of an Ending, 1967 a book of modern, modest length but breathtaking scope. It was a seminal book for me, as for many others, which had the effect of extending my critical interest in the novel from a new critical preconception with verbal style to an engagement with broader questions of narrative structure. Well, 
There are those who might say that the, the, the one most fault of the sense of an ending is that it's every bit as ahistorical as the new criticism. But I mean, that, that's one argument you could take, and there are certainly uh, you could pursue that. But on the other hand, it, 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 is, it was clearly, I mean, Lodge, after all, is something of a, or a collector, an editor of theory, if not a theorist himself, and certainly this, he, he, he saw this as a flag um, indicating a, uh, an important English theoretical departure but pre-theory in the other sense. Jacqueline, Steve's quoted you, so you... Well, well no, I, I'm, I'm not going to respond to that quote, although I still do think that is, is, is uh, true, that there was, if something fossilized, fossilized, he started to dislike it immediately. And therefore, I really do agree with Stephen that he can't have followers in that sense because it's a certain form of attention. And actually, as... As Michael was speaking, I was thinking this sort of alongside of or inviting or never sort of rigidifying into a certain kind of form, I was finding myself thinking, as anybody knows me knows I tend to do, I was finding myself thinking again of psychoanalysis, which is there's something about, you know, what would be a psychoanalytic discourse which would not give back the disturbance and the movement of the unconscious to the control of the ego, mm -hmm. but will allow it nonetheless to surface in a way that it can be heard. Mm -hmm. And it's as if in his, his mm -hmm. meticulous and also astonishingly learned, but always light, it's, it's like it's the crest of a wave, mm -hmm. learning, which he deposits onto his readings <laughs> and then dives underneath again. It is like swimming in a way. Um, it's as if he's just trying to keep things on the move the whole time. That's the key. And that's why I thought, Michael, you're picking out of opinion on charts. Of course, he wrote that amazing essay on opinion in Troilus mm -hmm. and Crusade, which is in the Critical Quarterly special issue mm -hmm. devoted to him. And Stephen, he says wonderfully that, you know, when he was about to throw out a load of his stuff, he said, this is one of my pieces which is perhaps not not all bad or something. Um, <laughs> and of course, it's absolutely extraordinary in its tracking of that term. But what he's doing is he's tracking it. And at the end of it, you've learned something very profound about the relationship between opinion and myth and fiction and delusion, but you haven't been told anything. And so it really is a form of discourse, which is probably, if it was being in, imitated, it would have been destroyed. Mm. And that is a problem for the academy. I think yeah. you're right. And, and you could also say along exactly the same lines that, 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 he, that Camote understood in the way that we all should but don't, that, that, that all, all of these things like fiction, myth, opinion, gossip, they are history. And they are history and they need historical examination. And we often think, oh no, that's the opposite of history. History is just sitting there waiting for us to pick it up and listen to the fact. But history, idioms have histories, metaphors have histories, uh, all, uh, these dodgy words like opinion have histories. You know, this seems to me he, he did understand. So there is a kind of, it's not linguistic history, but it's a sort of history it, it is, he is a historian of sorts, and that sorts is, is deeply entwined with language, and literature is actually the best place to look for such things. Well, I think, I mean, I want to open it up now. <laughs> if I just add one, one little more sort of pragmatic thought, because I think Frank could be quite pragmatic too, that given what we're saying about the Academy and some of his suspicions of the Academy, is that there is one... Um, in a way that doesn't influence, um, only influences me and one or two other people in this room, actually, who still teach in the UCL English department. One thing Frank did, which is continually influential, um, not him alone, I think Steve played a part in it too, is he designed a really brilliant English course for undergraduates. And it's 
It's got his fingerprints on it, although you have to know Frank to know that, because it's got the most brilliant sort of appearance of total sort of freedom, and yet it conducts people in such a way that by the time they graduate, they have to have read extraordinary swathes of literature which they wouldn't choose to read, and yet it leaves them with a feeling that they've chosen everything. It's fantastic. (laughs) It's really, really clever. And... um, as head of department, I've just succeeded a whole lot of other people in a row who, who have, as a history in UCL English department, the one thing you do is you refuse to let the powers that be make you reform the course because it's designed by Frank and it's designed so much more cleverly than anybody else is ever going to design a course. And not just Frank, no, no, but, no, but, but, no. but and it means that you come out, undergraduates come out at the end, not thanks people like me and Matthew teaching it but thanks to the course they come out at the end well read it's an extraordinary thing a miraculous thing and that's something that's sort of yeah yeah um, but anyway that's that's my personal feeling for his continuing influence um, please now we've got a, we've got a microphone we've got a microphone so who ah we've got here thank you I'm um, just briefly thinking about Frank Camo's writing, and especially the LRB pieces, of which there were so many, but also, for instance, chapters of the books. Something that always struck me was how they began and ended. It seems to me that he would begin in a way that was very unlike other writers. The first paragraph, the first line, would be very something that no other writer in the LRB would do. And often I think the endings too, and maybe the panel have their own thoughts on that. But I suppose what I mean is he would, he would often begin very suddenly, as though we were already three paragraphs in, <laughs> and we'd lost the first bit. And I suppose that impo- implies a kind of familiarity with the material, or as though uh, he'd already um, plunged us in and we were kind of in the midst of things already. So I'm thinking about that experience of reading the pieces, and particularly the beginning and the end, uh, and the effect of that, and I wondered if the panel had uh, similar feelings about those aspects of his writing. Mary Kay should talk, we think. Mary Kay should talk. Um, no, she's not going to. It's probably, probably Mary Kay's cut the food, cut the beef. Is that true? Is that true? No, I think I think there is some there is something in that, isn't there? That that um, you. You sort of joined him in something, yes. So, so you're saying that if that the fact that he seemed to begin in, in medias race yes. from time to time Absolutely. meant that, that it indicated that he assumed we knew yes. what the first two paragraphs were saying, or at least the range of reference. That's very interesting. That's, I've never thought of that before, but it's a very interesting idea. Interesting. As for the endings, hmm? what about the What? <laughs> we all do What's that. Say? Most pieces begin like. Uh, okay. Yeah. Well, then that's to the yeah. credit Frank, of the LRB. Yeah. That's his influence. But there was, I think, a lot of his LRB pieces um, had a sense of um, a really rich and enjoyable sense of, if not quite incompleteness. But I mean, this was part of something that could could go on. So actually, not like you know, an es- some really good essayists write essays which are just perfect and they're contained, and then nothing else could be added. But his weren't like that. And I quite often I remember, I, I remember when I heard that he died, I, 
I had a sort of really, in a way, ignoble first thought, which was, oh, God, I'll never be able to ask him what he meant, what he meant by that thing about triangles in Ian McEwan's atonement. He reviewed atonement in the LRB, and he said something about triangles. And it was really beguiling. And he obviously had had... A, and then he put it aside because he was thinking about something else. But he knew he'd put it aside... And I really wanted to ask him what it was, and I never, I won't be able to ask him now. And there was that sort of aspect of his criticism. Yes. It wasn't ended. Yes. I, I, yeah, just to add one brief, I don't want to hog the thing, but in, in his supervisions, in his writing, in his books, um, in his lectures, there was always something like that, something that you thought, what does he mean by that? You know, and more often than not, it would, it would tease you to chase it up. Um, I, I don't know if he did it on purpose. I think he did do it on purpose, yes. probably. But but uh, he he may not have known quite how little we knew by comparison. <laughs> but I think he, he always you were always chasing up things if you were interested, in which you were, because of the, the discourse was itself commanding. You would always try to chase up that which you didn't know. Mine isn't really a question. I just I met Frank in the late nineties when he was at the height of his disillusion with theory and very passionately so and felt that theory was going to take over academe and literary criticism and I th- what hasn't been talked about very much is his complete passion for the word on the page mm-hmm. and one of the extraordinary things about him was that I've never met anyone else who does this he would start crying at the same lines of poetry, a particular lines of poetry would always make him cry. And sometimes I just say, say the lines, and tears would pour down his cheek. Mm. And I remember he was, uh, he was asked to be the humanist overseer of a wedding for the Alvarez daughter. And he wanted to quote uh, Wallace Stevens, a few lines of Wallace Stevens, and he had to sort of practice beforehand not to cry because they always made him cry. I just think that was a very strange phenomenon that I've never seen from anyone else. Thank you. Um, I wanted to ask about uh, Camus' writing on um, T.S. Eliot. Uh, and when he talks about uh, Eliot's uh, prose writing, and Eliot as a critic, he talks about Eliot as a critic of somebody um, who understands, appreciates. Uh, and then there's the element of uh, creativity as opposed to perhaps the element of destruction as a critic. I mean, where do you see sort of Commode's element of creativity and how are we seeing the element of creativity in literary criticism today, perhaps? Cool. LRB yeah, <laughs> accepted. But. Uh, Michael? Um, I, 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 that's, it's sort of what I meant when I was saying we, you have to read him rather than uh, rather than a digest or look for the ideas, you have to read the words he wrote and the order in which he wrote them. And I, th- I, I would say the creativity was in the style, and I would say the style was almost always ironic, uh, which meant that more than one thing was going on at once, always. So that the, the, he scarcely knew how to write sentences that would only say one thing. So there was a kind of prose version of, I think this was true of the journalism and, and the academic um, 
materials. It wasn't, it wasn't an irony that undercut or denied what was being said. It was an irony that simply allowed you to think a little more, that there was more to be said than was being said. And I think if you, if, if you perfect a kind of style of that, of that kind, as, as you can imagine, you can, you can always say more than you're saying and possibly even more than you mean. Uh, and that will be one, one meaning of being a creative writer. I mean, I just, I suppose there was one thing, again, rather empirical that I I thought of adding to that, which is just simply to do with the range, extraordinary range of authors and works that he wrote about over the course of his career, Um, which is something, in a way, perhaps it shouldn't need need saying, but is, is kind of at certain periods has been very rare in academic criticism, certainly, which is that that, I mean, he didn't triumph over, over writers, did he? I mean, of course, no. you don't triumph over Shakespeare or Milton. Well, Leavis could, but, you know. Um, but I, I remember reading in a collection of essays on fiction that he published, I think, about 20 years or so ago, um, some, an, an essay which is largely about Arnold Bennett. Mm. And without being sort of sentimental about it or making <coughs> a big noise about it... Um, or pretending, on the other hand, that Arnold Bennett was as good as Conrad or something, um, he made Arnold Bennett seem really interesting, yeah. and he made you want to read on. And I know that's that's the kind of basic property of um, of a good critic, but actually, no, I think not. It often it, it's rather rare, and that certainly when he published those essays, there were academic critics all over the place triumphing over writers. Triumphing over them by discovering sure. their sort of the yeah. things they didn't know they were doing, or in, but not in a, in a in an interesting and productive way, in a sort of even supercilious way sometimes. And that that was his that was a gift of his, and almost I thought a sort of uh, a principle. Yeah. I just want to add to that that he wrote as if he, as if he was discovering what he thought as he wrote, um, and. The point about a certain kind of academic writing is that you start with an argument. I think this also relates to your point about how he always seems to start not at the beginning because he doesn't start by laying out what he's going to say. And I don't think that's just rhetorical or, or stylistic. I think it's to do with something very profound about not wanting to triumph, not just over the, over the artist he's writing about. He doesn't want to triumph over the process of writing or over himself. So you, it's almost like after effect. It's as if everything mm-hmm. that's happening is on the move, and only when you get to the end of it, it's as if does he even know what he's done? Mm-hmm. It's it's never. There's a certain kind of control of uh, criticism which he is trying not to conform to. I think mm-hmm. there's something going on about his relationship to words, which I think probably relates also to what Ursula Ernst said, which is that he's. It's a tribute to the moment of the writing that will take you somewhere where you are really not in control at all so. um. yeah. Yeah. just to add also to the empirical thing if you if you read read Kimmel's memoir not not in title which I sort of I've been I've been rereading if you read that for the sense what you get is the sense of a man who thought he wasn't any good at anything didn't do anything very much <laughs> uh, he wasn't a very good teacher didn't generally you know, life's full of disappointment and if it's read as a philosophical work he read like some mournful <laughs> skeptics uh, summing up of how terrible life is now the odds are not good for anything good happening and so on 
that's not how you feel when you finish reading it. So there is a kind of there's a kind of interesting uh, divorce between the ostensible content and drift of this thing, the actual effect of the writing, which is full of affection for language, prose, and things. And I think he learned that. I mean, you, you get, no one's born a writer. You just you, you get there by being working at it. But one of the things you can do as a writer, I think, is you learn to. And he knew that very well. I think that you that he there was a pleasure in the sentences, and you know, I think I think well, that was what this is quite wonderful about it. Really. And I think he he would not probably have admitted that his own sentences gave him that sort of pleasure. But they if they didn't, they ought to have. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. <laughs>